This is not just some manic depressive preacher as some would make him. He's broken hearted over the glory of Almighty God. And so, yes, he's discouraged. But his discouragement concerns your covenant, your altars, and your prophets. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a mini-series looking at the prophet Elijah. Elijah was a man totally committed to God, and God showed himself faithful to the prophet in that commitment. And yet, despite seeing what God had already done in his life, we find the prophet discouraged, all alone and feeling self-pity as he's on the run from the wicked queen Jezebel. Our text is 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 8. If you just look into the face of your problem 24-7, instead of looking into the face of God, you're going to live in that discouragement. Many times God will bring a person alongside. Many times he'll just meet you because you're meeting him, assuming you are in your quiet time. And so if you are discouraged, you don't want to stay on a path of isolation. Here's Elijah. He's, he's isolated geographically. He's down in a, in a place where, you know, you, you can only spend so many hours there. Even in the wintertime, it's hot. And he's isolated from people. But we will see that a real believer is never, ever isolated from God. I want you to notice the progression as he travels down this path. He also travels the road of self-pity. He travels the road of self-pity. We're told here in verse 8 that Elijah, notice, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He's saying, Lord, I've had it. I'm turning in my prophet's badge. Kill me. I'm not better than my father's. They all died for the cause. I'm a nobody. Take me too. One of the fruits of discouragement is sometimes feeling sorry for yourself, wanting to have a pity party. Kill me, dear Lord. Please let me die. I'm just, I've had it. Have you ever thanked God for unanswered prayer? I think in hindsight, some of the moronic things I've prayed for in my life that God, thank God, didn't answer. And of course, when we pray, we have a double intercessor, not only Christ, but Paul says the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray sometimes as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us, and I thank God that he does. Now, personally, I don't think that Elijah is being totally honest with the Lord. I mean, clearly, if he wanted to die, it would be easy. All he would need to do is go back to Jezebel, and she would have gladly have accommodated his request. In fact, I think he wants to live like crazy. But he's venting his feelings here, and he's being honest with God, and he's really telling about all the hardship. It's because misery often likes company. And so he moved down this path of isolation, down this road of self-pity. He's totally exhausted, and he sits under this shade tree, a broom tree, a juniper tree. And by the way, discouragement, it will drain you. It just will take all the vim and vigor and vitality out of your life. It will leave you totally exhausted. 
You say, Pastor, that will never happen to me. I am on the top of the world spiritually. May I remind you that it is in the midst of victory that the scripture teaches that you are most vulnerable. There is something about victory that elates, that potentially takes your guard down and makes you a target for the evil one. Don't forget, it's just a short distance from the victory of 1 Kings 18 on top of Mount Carmel to where he is in chapter 19 in despair. And very times it's in our most victorious moments that we are most vulnerable to the evil one, and he knows that. I've noticed on more than one occasion in the spiritual life of a local assembly, even our own church, that after God gives us a, a series of great victories, that we are most vulnerable. And Satan knows that. And that's not just true corporately, it's true individually. You go out and you share the gospel for the first time in your life and you see someone pray with you and they call upon Jesus' name in faith and you're walking on cloud nine. And that's when Satan attacks. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells me that's when he attacks. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take care lest he fall. Lest he fall from what? In the context, he begins that chapter with the tremendous victories that God had given to the people of Israel. And it's in the midst of great victory that they fall. It comes right after the supernatural work of God performed through Moses that they lose perspective. And that is the point, again, where we are most vulnerable. And I've told you many, many, many times in the last next month, I've been here 30 years, that an unguarded strength is a double weakness. So having considered the cause of discouragement and the course of discouragement, let's finish by thinking about the cure for discouragement. The cure for discouragement. Now, while God did not give Elijah what he asked for, he did give him what he needed. And God's cure for discouragement comes on two levels. First, God's ministry to Elijah in the physical realm. God's ministry to the prophet Elijah in the physical realm. Verse 5 begins with a beautiful picture of the grace of God. Notice. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. This man's physically exhausted. He's emotionally spent. You do not do what Elijah did up on top of Mount Carmel and encountering these false teachers, then running about 20 miles, being in an intense prayer meeting to bring rain and not be drained both physically and spiritually. So God sends what the writer of the Hebrews calls one of his ministering servants, one of his ministering angels from heaven to prepare a meal for this man of God. And no doubt, as the angels of God often appear in human form in the Old Testament, we are reminded of the same truth in the New Testament in Hebrews 13 too, which is why this scripture says you can entertain an angel without ever knowing it. So he's in a deep sleep, and this angel comes, and he wakes him up. Look at verse 6. Then he looked, and behold... There was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. So God woke him up to give him this angel food cake, and he gave him a jar of water. God was taking care of him personally. Why did he send an angel to do it? 
He'd sent birds to do it before, gave him a brook, could have given him a spring. Because I think God wants to remind him that there's a lot of things that are often going on in this spiritual realm that you cannot see. So he eats and he drinks and then he goes back to sleep. And he slept for a while. Then we read in verse 7, the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise, eat, because the journey, God has a place he wants him to go. Hold that in your mind because the journey is too great for you. One of the ways to deal with discouragement is by interfacing the physical dimension with the spiritual dimension in your life. I've said to more than one person in counseling them in the years in my office, hey, I think you need more than anything two or three really good nights of sleep. And we're living in a society that is often pressurized, and you cannot escape the pressure of the society just because you're a child of God. We are all members of the same human family. And there are times, even in my own life, where I get so busy and the demands are so great, and sometimes I'll go a spell where there's just seemingly four or five hours of sleep a night, and there's nothing necessarily spiritual about that. Sometimes it can be just plain stupid. But I then find myself getting touchy and snappy. And my wife says, what did I do? You didn't do anything, you're just there. <laughs> and it's not the problem is so bad, it's said, we're so bad. And in the spiritual realm, God speaks not just of our inner person, but our outer person. And he brings the two together. Some people, for instance, have ulcers because they worry. They're carrying responsibility that God never intended for them to carry. But on the spiritual side, too, some people have no vitality, no spiritual strength because they have unconfessed, unrepented sin in their life. King David wrote these words in Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Sometimes you hear these pious Christians say, well, I'd rather burn out than rust out. Well, biblically, that's nonsense because God doesn't want you to either burn out or to rust out. He wants you to live out in the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants you to be a spirit-filled believer and to live under his control. And so there's a balance in Scripture between walking in the Spirit and taking care of yourself physically. And burnout can come through the spiritual dimension, sometimes just because you're not feeding yourself spiritually. You ignore the gathering together of God's people. And oftentimes it's when we ignore the gathering of God's people that the problems begin to rise and we make some very foolish and stupid decisions. Or we're just not spending time alone with God. It's more than just the pastor feeding you. You need to also become a self-feeder. Listen, when you're an infant, you feed that little child. But as they mature, they begin to feed themselves. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. You need to take care of yourself physically. You know, I mean, these Christians, I don't smoke or drink. You know, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but neither do they get sleep or exercise and they're overweight and they eat food that they shouldn't be eating. Look, it's one thing for your health to be taken because you just live in a fallen world. It's quite another thing for your health to be taken because you threw it away. So burnout can come in the spiritual realm in different ways. And so then, instead of being refreshed by your service for the Lord, if you're burned out, you become dissatisfied. 
And a pastor is especially susceptible to this. I went into the ministry in 1978, and I've learned over the years. And when I became a senior pastor of a local church, you know, you're giving out all week long. You're counseling people. You're responding to phone calls. You're helping younger pastors. You're sharing your faith. You're dealing with people's problems, sometimes funerals, sometimes weddings. And you're studying God's word, and you're preparing. And then Sunday comes, and you preach two times. Sometimes an after meeting, meet the pastor where I speak for an hour. Then an evening, meet the pastor where I speak another hour, and I wake up on Monday morning, and I'm totally exhausted. You have to almost scrape me off the floor, and some of you, you work your job hard all week, and Sunday comes, and you teach an ABF, or you minister to the children in Awana or or the nursery, and you give out, and you give out, but if you don't take in... You will burn out. You will dry out. And some people just quit. I'm I'm just taking a spiritual break. You know, I'm, I'm quitting for the next five years. How foolish is that? People just quit and they don't even show up in church anymore. Well, I just need a break. How they have lost perspective. So God takes Elijah the prophet first by ministering to him physically. He needs to rejuvenate him physically so that he can minister to him spiritually. And many of you know by experience that if you're tired and hungry and suffering from exhaustion, it will be difficult for you to have a good devotional time. And if you were out late last night and you got your children to bed late last night, then you are experiencing a deficit this morning in terms of hearing the Word of God. That's why traditionally I've always tried to guard the church's schedule where we don't, unless it's absolutely essential, have Saturday night times. Because I want our people to be ready and prepared to worship. I don't think it's by accident that the Sabbath began with sundown. It began sundown Friday and went through sundown Saturday because God wanted to prepare the nation for worship. Write out next to verse 7, would you, 2 John 2, 2 John 2. Put it out in the margin next to verse 7. Let me read it to you. It's just one chapter. I say 2 John 2, 3 John 2, 3 John 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. God is concerned that you prosper physically and spiritually, and yet so many of God's people go to one extreme or another. They either excuse poor physical health that they've brought on themselves, and so they don't think it affects them spiritually, or on the other extreme, all they do is worship the body and exercise, 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 and in the process, they neglect the spiritual man. And it's not an either or, this verse of forms, it's a both and. So God is interested in both. And so beginning in verse 8, we find God's ministry to Elijah in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual realm. Let me read verse 8. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, don't you wish you had that recipe? I mean, talk about power-packed food. He went to Horeb, the mountain of God. It's also called in Scripture Mount Sinai. That's the place where Moses met God. It's about another 200 miles south of Beersheba. Now, the location is significant because that is where God made a covenant with the nation, the very covenant that they are breaking. 
which verses 15 through 17 will underscore as bringing God's discipline. Now, I think geographically, just that he travels another 200 miles, the idea that Elijah is in fear and he just can't get far enough when he's continuing to run is just not accurate. He's going there for a reason. God has already refreshed him physically and spiritually. To use a rough American analogy, he, Elijah is in Philadelphia, and then he travels to Beersheba in Washington, D.C., and then he travels another 200 miles to Raleigh, North Carolina. And it's certainly not at this point because he's in panic and fleeing Jezebel. Mount Sinai, the Mount Sinai, the Mount Horeb connection is not accidental. Because again, it was there that God made the covenant with Israel, and it was there that they broke the covenant. And so this angel fed him because he knew where he was heading. He is not merely some whining prophet, as, as some make him at this point. No, he is concerned over the spiritual health of the people who repeatedly broke the covenant of God. Look at verse 9. Then he came to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah has come to meet God, and so he's lodged in a cave, the text says. And instead of rebuking him, like some preach this text, that this is a rebuke. Like, what are you doing here, you idiot? This is not a rebuke. The question is not implying criticism. It's God in ministry to him. He, he wants to dialogue and have a conversation with his prophet. What are you doing here, Elijah? Listen, it's a reminder to me that while you might even be out of God's will, you're never out of God's care. Elijah, for a moment, lost perspective, but now he's coming to Horeb for a reason. Look at his response in verse 10. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets. And that's emphatic in my Hebrew Bible, with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Let me tell you why I'm here, Lord. I've worked hard for you, and this congregation you've given me, I've preached sermon after sermon after sermon, and they're just carnal and unresponsive, and look what they've done. Look, the co look at the covenant they've broken. They've messed up your covenant, your altars, and yes, they've killed even your prophets. Please understand, his discouragement at this point is not totally self-centered as many would make it. His heart is broken. He's poured himself out in service to God. And the people of God continue to ignore God. He is concerned for God's sake, for God's work, for God's cause. This is not just some manic, depressive preacher, as some would make him. He's brokenhearted over the glory of Almighty God. And so, yes, he's discouraged. But his discouragement concerns your covenant, your altars, and your prophets. And by the way, what makes you discouraged and despondent? Do you ever get discouraged and despondent over the glory of God and the will of God for his church? I think so many want to write Elijah off as some whiner. Why? Because we have vested entrances and we like to be belly acres and say, there's a fellow belly acre and there's my biblical basis for it. 
And we don't really want to admit that our despondency often is over self-centered reasons, and we never get discouraged or despondent over infidelity with God. And so he adds here and again in verse 14, he says it twice, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So God's going to remind him that that's not exactly true. He may feel alone, but actually, according to verse 18, there are 7,000 prophets who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Let me read verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. He's giving him some encouraging words. Elijah, you're not alone. There are 7,000 people who are living for me, 7,000 people with character who have refused to bow their knee to Baal. Elijah, you're not alone. And by the way, Paul quotes this in, he, in Romans chapter 11, this very passage of Scripture to remind us that God has always had his remnant because in 9, 10, and 11, he deals with Israel's election in chapter 9, Israel's rejection of Jesus in chapter 10, and their future restoration in chapter 11. And it reminds us that God has always had a remnant. And while the nation is largely in unbelief when Paul writes Romans to this day, he still had a remnant of believing Jews, Paul himself being one. And it was a reminder to Paul that God was still going to be faithful and he was going to keep his promises to Israel and that the church is falsely being taught over and over and over again today, creating a distorted eschatology. God has not replaced Israel with the church. But this encounter serves as a reminder that no man is indispensable to the work of God. We're only instruments. God wants to use you, but the danger when God begins to use you is to think that it's you rather than him. In fact, sometimes I'm convinced that God removes an individual just to show and to teach his people that truth. Suppose Jezebel had snuffed out the life of Elijah. It's altogether possible that God would have moved in the lives of one of these 7,000 and raised them up to do the work that this prophet had done. No one is indispensable to the God service. And our time is about gone, but please don't miss the lesson. Notice how God ministers and cares for his man. Verse 11, so he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Now, there's a spillover from the text to our day. Sometimes we want to see God and fellowship with God in the spectacular, in the miraculous. Some pastors fill auditoriums on that false notion. And we think we need to see the mountain shake to see God work. But the scripture says the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake, oh, wow, that must be God talking. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake fire, oh, I know that's God, but the Lord was not in the fire. Where are you, Lord? You told me to come to Mount Horeb, but I don't see you in any of these spectacular ways. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing wind. And that's where he hears God's voice. And by the way, he hears God's voice 
some of these women Bible teachers who are going around, God speaks to me in that still, small voice. And let me tell you what God said. And they come up with sheer nonsense, extra revelation, adding to scripture. Like there's some super spiritual thing. God still spoke. But he doesn't use a dramatic experience to do it. And it came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? You mean you didn't cover your face in the earthquake? No, because the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. You mean you didn't cover your your face in the strong wind when God ran the mountains? No, because the Lord was not in the wind. You mean you didn't cover your face in the fire? No, because the Lord wasn't in the fire. Where was the Lord? He was not in the spectacular. He was in the everyday simple breezes of life. And God wanted to teach this prophet as he wants to teach you and me that normally God does not speak in the extraordinary Mount Carmel experiences, but in the everyday experiences of of life. Now, Elijah had seen a series of dramatic encounters where he had witnessed God's power, where he was fed at a brook, where he saw a jar of oil and, and some flour that never gave up, where he saw a great ball of fire come out of heaven, where he saw a dead boy come back to life. And God wants him to know that that's not typically how he speaks, but he speaks in quiet and gentle ways. Do you know what I've come to appreciate? It's the kind of life that doesn't function on the dramatic, emotional experiences, but in the glory of the grind, the everyday experiences of life, because that's where we live. See, Elijah had just come off the mountain of the spectacular, and he needs to be reminded that the normal is just as wonderful as this spectacular and that God will often meet us there. Have you learned that? Have you learned to function in the normal? Or have you been sold the bill of goods that you need these dramatic experiences to walk with God? God wants to meet you in your home when you're cleaning the floor when you're in your neighborhood and cutting the grass, when you're at work in your battalion or in your office, God wants to meet you in the everyday moments of life as you live by faith in what he has said in his word. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for this prophet of God, this man of God, and the timeless lessons that are here. And we know the kind of walk that he had can't even begin for an individual until they receive forgiveness, where you would then implant the spirit in them, where they would know you from the least to the greatest, as you promised through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So help someone today to see that they are bankrupt, they are helpless, that they can do zero to redeem themselves, that they need a savior who can forgive them and implant within them the Holy Spirit giving them new life, making them a new creature. Help someone today, Father, to say, Jesus, save me by your death and resurrection. We ask it for your sake and for your glory, Lord Jesus, and in your holy name, amen. To listen again to today's study entitled Overcoming Discouragement, part of our mini-series Profiling the Prophet Elijah, use the Search the Scriptures app or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7800.
888-357-7478 and requesting program ELI5. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you'd like to help, click the Give button on the STS app or at the website searchthescriptures.org. Thank you. Tomorrow we continue our look at Elijah in a message entitled, Burning Your Bridges. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.